Have you ever wondered how a kangaroo can live in a tree? Or what about crocodiles and how they can stay underwater for hours at a time and not be seen? Maybe what keeps you up at night is your thoughts of how box jellyfish can be the most venomous animal in the whole world towards humans? Or is it your curiosity of what really goes on inside that caterpillar cocoon for a magnificent, stunning butterfly to emerge? Well, don't worry, as I have all your questions answered and much, much more with our following Wild Chats, I am going to bring you the most amazing guests. Hey everyone, my name is Jodie Creek and I'm a wildlife educator and huge advocate for Australian animals. And of course, their habitats and ecosystems as well. But what I'm truly passionate about is bringing you information that you need to connect with the natural world. So someone once said to me that I may not be able to change the world but I can change the world around me. So let's hope that we can inspire you to make change at home and therefore together we do actually change the world. So get that cup of tea ready and enjoy the following Wild Chats. G'day guys and welcome to another Wild Chat. We have a very special guest with us today, the man that knows everything about (laughs) about the rainforest at least. Uh, We were just having a chat to Justin from Rainforest Rescue about... uh, well, before we do a podcast, we usually talk for about 15 minutes about uh, our special guest with our special guest. And as it turns out, Justin actually knows everything. So welcome to our show, Justin, from Rainforest Rescue. And obviously, we've got Jody here as well. Why did you say it like that? You actually went, obviously. obviously. Well, Jody's always here because you're the feature piece of the podcast, Jody. <laughs> but yes, welcome to the podcast, Justin. Hey, how are you? Great. It's a very, very hot day today. The humidity is rising. I think we're going to get a thunderstorm. Well, no, we're not actually. And this is what happens in the tropics. And we're we're in Cairns. We don't really. But it is the wet tropics. Well, that's why we have Justin here. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Thank you. Oh, I've already been working in it today. <laughs> oh, you would lose yeah. so much sweat. Like, lose oh, yeah. so much sweat. Lose. Moisture would... through sweat. Yeah. Oh yeah, you cook at this time of year. <laughs> oh. That's probably the most Australian thing I've heard today. You cook at you this cook. time of year. Oh, you do cook. Oh, and the bigger you are, the faster you overheat. So more of an excuse to have a beer and go for a swim. So, Justin, thanks for yeah. joining us um, <laughs> today. This has been a great podcast. <laughs> I didn't bring any beers, actually. Um, yeah. Justin, we've got you here today to have a chat to us, not only about yourself, but obviously the organisation that you represent, Rainforest Rescue. It's one of my favourite organisations up here. They do great work, uh, not only in all the rainforest, but particularly around the Daintree area which is obviously one of the most famous uh, locations in Australia. So, Justin, we always ask people at the start of the podcast, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So, take it away, my friend. All right. So, a little bit about myself. Um, Geez, long story short, territory born. (laughs) I've moved all around the place growing up. So, I've seen a lot of the territory going around the countryside to Indigenous communities across the north of Dad's work and, geez, Mount Isa and... Explored the desert country, um, Sunshine Coast, Fraser Island. Oh, loved it down there. Um, Mary Valley. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, decided to find the in-between, the Northern Territory and southeast Queensland, which is the Daintree. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the, the heat in the Northern Territory, especially Darwin, is not enjoyable. No, it's brutal. You, you, you have a shower, you get out, you dry yourself off, and then you need another one. <laughs> you're just sweating. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. it's something else. Yeah, over silly there. season. It's yeah. a good place to uh, settle down. Well, I don't. Is, are you going to be here for a while? Or? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Perfect. Breaking news: so Justin yeah, yeah. is not leaving. Yeah. <laughs> he knows everything, and he's here for good. Ah, oh, jeez. Perfect. <laughs> 
continue. Oh, gee. Yeah, I was going to say, I can't know everything. Jeez. You know, you got to keep learning your whole life. Um, so, yeah, with Rainforest Rescue, I became the land manager for them uh, about a year ago. I had my one-year anniversary just last week. So, yeah, it's oh, been a year awesome. now. So, yeah, after spending much uh, time tour guiding uh, around the Daintree National Park with Rainforest Tours as well as on the river, uh, for river tours, um, so not just about crocs there, is everything that's in between. Yeah, crocs are just the result, love it. Uh, but also worked at the zoo at Port Douglas, Wildlife Habitat. Tree kangaroos were my main focus, but I love working with all the animals there, uh, trying to improve on um, just husbandry, you know, look, uh, and also helping with uh, research on the wild populations. Um, yeah, so in amongst all that, a lot of citizen science work from frog monitoring, so since, ever since the Frog ID app kicked off, that's mm. been a good one. Yeah, that's a good um, one. Seeing how populations have been increasing in certain areas and yeah. whether they're decreased in others. So that's a great one. Um, so good to get some recordings of unique faces of North Queensland. Um, yeah, a bit of a jack of all trades, you know. We right. did introduce you as knowing everything. No. So. <laughs> well, yeah. it, it, keeps, it keeps everything interesting for you. Yeah, it's all connected, eh, from the tops of the mountains to the reef. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, with Rainforest Rescue, I mean, this group kicked off uh, 1999, so, geez, I finished school that year. It's a while ago. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, with their main, um, eth- uh, their main um, focus is to protect rainforests forever. So, every year, uh, you know, two or three properties are purchased uh, through funding from, uh, it's a non-for-profit group, so through funding from uh, philanthropy and, and people that are passionate about protecting rainforests. Um, globally, just as much as um, keeping it locally in the Daintree, uh, and we don't, yeah, we don't just gain properties willy nilly. There has to be a very specific criteria ticked off mm. for each property. So, uh, you know, what's what's living there, the the health of the forest, but also the corridor that it's going to create. So you can't just, you know, no point just getting a block with houses all around it because it's just an island. Um, you why not? make a corridor linking national park areas and then just expand on it and just connect the jigsaw puzzle over time as property owners um, feel that they might like to sell. So, yeah, it's really interesting. We've got 30, uh, up to our 38th property. Wow, uh, so that's I, outstanding. Yeah, so I manage, I look after those properties, just check in on them. Um, if people that have been helping out with Rainforest Rescue or you know, school groups, anyone that wants to have a bit of a look, we always cater to um, anyone who's curious to the Daintree and we go for a walk on the properties. Or um, So some of it's old growth. We have a beautiful property uh, of old growth forest linking the um, national park areas on Alexander Range in the low country. So you can walk from the fan palms through some really nice tall spurred mahoganies and stuff like that up to the higher elevations of about three, 200 metres before you hit the national park. So it's really nice there, uh, seeing a lot of life moving through there. Uh, but also we've got a, another property near Cooper's Creek, the old palm oil plantation oh. that uh, got regened about... Oh, I think it was seven years ago. I didn't yeah? know we had a palm oil plantation. Yeah, that was the that was the one that Christopher Scase took all the palms from to plant in Port Douglas along the main road yeah. and around the Sheridan. Yeah, yeah. So that's where they all came from. A lot of history in the Daintree. Oh, yeah. Right? A lot of history. Very, very unique part of the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. there's a lot of people listening who 
are probably like, well, what is the danger? What is the danger? <laughs> like, Take it away, Justin. What is oh, the danger? What is the danger? Give us an introduction to the danger because obviously we know it became a World Heritage listed area uh, yeah. through the wet tropics. Yeah. Uh, and talk talk to us about the process that's happened because obviously a lot of the land is still freehold land. You know, you're yeah. purchasing it off people. Mm. Um, so, can you walk us through the Daintree, a little bit of a basic history of it? All right. So, uh, originally, you, you would have had settling families, uh, Cape Kimberley, Cow Bay area, uh, around about the 1920s, uh, later 30s Cape Tribulation, uh, and boat access, mainly for some of those uh, settling areas, Bailey's Creek and, and places like that. So, people moved into the area, were taking up cheap land, um, same as the Daintree Valley. People were encouraged to get into these areas, clear, clear a patch, grow um, product. That was one of the conditions. Uh, had to grow some kind of crop for the local markets, so bananas or other tropical fruits, sugarcane, stuff like that. So uh, each section of the Daintree Valley has different stories because it's all different weather patterns. So very interesting um, settlement history. Uh, the last of the Yalangi we're walking through the landscape north of the Dainty River and to- towards the end of the late 40s, so after World War II. Yeah, so, right. you know, there's a lot of history there of um, not only settling families moving in, but the people that were on the land as it was starting to um, intermingle with them uh, and um, actually got along pretty well in the majority. Um, so people were living there, but when it came to seeing uh, national parks being created over there in, um, uh, in America in the 60s so that was uh, a bit of a um, framework to to work off for here in Australia so yeah lots of little national parks were being established around in the 60s uh, different names uh, but yeah it wasn't World Heritage listed until um, what was it 88 mm. yeah so I think it was was it announced expo mm. Mm, I can't remember but um, yeah so people were already there with World Heritage areas being established around them so it's a really interesting place where you could be on one side where you can be protect the forests and protect the green and all that stuff, or do we find that balance between the people in the landscape, create corridors, keep the people there, and, and promote um, a bit of a balance for the future? Yeah. Because mm. world heritage status, there has to be a past, present, future connection for every person on the planet. So it's one of the few world heritage areas where people get to live. So it's a great privilege to be able to live over there. I lived over there for about two years. It's quite an interesting life, <laughs> off grid all the time. Yeah, and, I think um, that's that's one of the I huge. Would love that. That's yeah. a massive um, contentious topic up oh. there. Power. Yeah. Should there or shouldn't there be power north of the Daintree River? Oh, that's what always. Do you think? <laughs> I don't. Oh. Based on <laughs> your own, own, own what size? Honestly, I, I don't know enough about how they would move electricity through there to make an informed decision. Because you look, every single person's either got solar or generators, right? Majority being generators and they're just Mm. chugging diesel all the time and spitting fumes out. Or do you sacrifice a particular part of the land to put energy through there? But I don't know uh, how on earth they would do that by being sustainable in doing so. I don't don't know enough about the electricity grid to be able to make a decision. Did you have power when you lived there? Yeah, we just just had had solar. Uh, and the only time you really start to get your, your ge- oh, I didn't even have a generator. I just had a uh, like a truck alternator with a four-stroke engine on it. So um, we'd only be using that mostly in the wet season. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because just not getting the sun. There's no sun. So you just be conservative with your power a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. See, I could easily do that. Mm. Oh, 
It like brings that. you brings you to earth. Oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, that's why when we go up to yeah. Melander and we stay at our mm. at our block, we've just yeah, we've got one solar got, panel. That's it. We've got nothing. Yeah. It just yeah. runs the fridge. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've got a bit of gas for hot water. Oh, so yeah. good. Yeah. Well, it, it all depends on what you can afford. Mm. That's the thing. There's a changing there's a changing focus in the Daintree at the moment. Um, COVID really helped with that. Yeah. So. Um, uh, people wanting to to find that connection with the natural world, yes. uh, but technology's just got to catch up to make it yeah a little bit better for it. Yeah, mm-hmm. when it comes to power storage and I mean we can make the power a lot better, but yeah, just need that power storage a little bit better. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a huge thing at the moment is the storage mm-hmm. because so many people are just getting the power, but they're, they're not doing oh, anything. It costs twenty grand to get yourself a little thing to mm-hmm. store it at home. Yeah, well, it's exactly. A lot of money. That's yeah, yeah. Be something moving yeah. forward. Interesting yeah. times. Oh, it's um, yeah. Well, you get plenty of time to think about it because, um, geez, you, you know, wet season. You're like, oh, where's the clothes dryer? There's no clothes dryer. I'll have to make one. <laughs> a solar clothes dryer, which can then double up as a dehydrator if you want to make jerky. So, <laughs> so there's things that you can do. Um, it, it, but there's nothing better than being able to lie in bed at night up there in the Daintree when you're visiting and hearing the sooty owls calling or a rufous owl calling and. The dingoes are howling, they do their chorus of an afternoon. Um, you hear the booming of cassowaries in the morning, you know. They do their morning wake-up, morning calls, just like the rest of the birds. That's incredible. Uh, just I'll those, power that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the so pitters nice. calling all night, wow. on and off. You know when it, what the time is by the pitters yeah. <laughs> <laughs> calling. Um, it's like, oh, it's midnight, go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to someone up there recently, um, just last week actually, and they said it was interesting, on a full moon, all of the redneck croaks don't call. Oh, yeah, they like, a lot of as people think they're frogs. Full moon. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Well, he, this bloke yeah. was loved frogs, and he said, "Do you know what this call is? Because it only happens on a full moon." I said, oh, that's a redneck crack. And he said, "Mate, they went nuts." But this is right near Doobagee and there's a oh. very, very healthy population of them. Yeah, too. I had them all around my house. Yeah. We even had gliders. It was an interesting to see because we were right on the edge of an ecotone between the rainforest, and then you get a very quick change into some um, eucalypt. Wetter, and then wetter areas, fan palm gallery, and then paperbark forests with oh. orchids and yeah, very quick changes. And the gliders were moving in amongst the eucalypt area to the paperbarks and into the rainforest. Yeah, right. Well, Kreft's glider, I think we have to call them. Yeah, so they've changed this. Sugar glider. I keep thinking turtle day. Turtle the glides for the rainforest. I actually thought someone was talking about a turtle the other day, and then they started talking about has has hair, and I was like, okay, I'm totally missing something. Let's not go down the path of taxonomy, please. <laughs> oh, it will be exhausting. Well, at least we get more species to talk about. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, um, being able to live in the Daintree, tour guiding, talking about everything that we, you know, because about every second day someone's going to ask, "Do you believe in climate change?" And I'd have to be, "Nope, don't believe in it, but I understand it." We can see natural oh. progression in the Daintree. That's the best thing about it. We can see oh, past, present and future natural processes, very important aspect of the wet tropics. So, you know, you can look up into the mountains of Thornton's Peak and um, used to be able to climb up there, used to be allowed to on a permit structure. Um, I've been up there, it's great to see the beautiful nursery frog that lives up there and the skink and the spiny crayfish and the unique plants. But, you know, you can walk around on our mountaintops at about... Books are saying at the moment about 130-odd million years ago for forms of forest and climate. So that's what mid Cretaceous. That's not a bad feeling. Just no raptors or anything, which is great. Um, 
geez, when you look at the Riversley fossil displays, you see all the drop we crocs just, and everything that lived out there. Yeah, we were just there about a month ago, actually. It was amazing. Yeah, so um, you can see uh, you know, about that stage and you go down into the low country and, and as you move between uh, valley systems, you know, you can be hovering around that 50 to 70 to 100 million mark in certain valley systems and then all of a sudden you can drop you know, could cross a creek and see a very sudden change in the vegetation like um, like Marja Boardwalk. You've got Oliver Creek there. Beautiful forest in the Noah Valley. Could be classed as closer to 100 million years for former forests and climate up, up through that area. But then you cross the creek and you've just jumped into a monsoonal gallery forest. That's the future. Mm. And that's what our rainforests are becoming as we drift closer to Asia. Can't stop that. So, yeah, it's very interesting to see natural change uh, mm. at a fast-paced rate. Because that's, mm. that's the big controversial mm. question, right, is does it exist, does it not exist? Well, Australia, what are we, six to seven centimetres on average per year? Yeah, it mucks up the GPSs every couple of years, but it makes your flights to Japan cheaper, I hope. You see so. the world very, <laughs> yeah. very differently to a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Walking through the rainforest right and seeing different, um, yeah. you know. Past... Um, time periods, yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's yeah. incredible. So, um, yeah, that's one of the best. That's why it's World Heritage List. Some of the, yeah, the classification for World Heritage Listing Heritage listings pretty complex. Like it has to be, a, you know, we can observe past, present and natural, pro, uh, mm. past, present, future natural processes. But there has to be a link to people too. Mm. So cultural and natural heritage for the yeah. game tree. And that gets yeah, so we can see the, the ancestry to every plant we eat, every plant in our gardens, forests, woodlands of the world. So you know, look at tassel ferns and whisk ferns and um, ribbon ferns and stuff like that. And you know that? What's that? 315 odd million years. They've been around, barely changed in design. Uh, just learnt the other day we can't call them green dinosaurs potentially anymore. It's not good. <laughs> because genetically, got to love it, the stuff we can't see unless you've got a nice doctorate and genetics <laughs> they are a lot more complex as time goes on but their structure looks the same so a king fern might look the same as 300 million years ago but its genetics are beginning more and it's more different. complex yeah it's um another field we won't go into that one yeah so <laughs> i told you he knows everything <laughs> uh, unbelievable uh, on tours i loved it when someone would go do you know this and it's like no <laughs> Gonna have to find out now. Thanks for that. <laughs> the curiosity is gonna burn a yeah. hole in my brain. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Google. A Google Scholar, though. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's go to the right one. Yeah. So, yeah, with the with the um, um, yeah, with the connection to people, like having international tourists coming to Australia and appreciating uh, this World Heritage Area is just phenomenal. Uh, so, with Rainforest Rescue, I now have to put everything I talked about into practice. Yeah to help it you know, uh, be protected, but also um, we do regeneration projects as well. So um, like the project Nightwings that we've uh, been doing for quite a few years now, um, just north of Wonga Beach, uh, old cane field, um, property owner there wanted it um, re-established, uh, she loves the bats, so good bat habitat. Um, been a few faces involved with that project over time, so you can see different aspects, different ways of, um, uh, of regen. Uh, but with Rainforest Rescue, they're very big on um, high diversity and closer plantings. So there's no hard and fast rule on how you do regen. So everybody's got a different perspective. Yeah. Um, the Tablelands is really good for that. They just had a symposium um, on all the different methods on the Tablelands. All very different. 
So, but all doing the same thing, bringing back the rainforests. So um, up there, it's more Marby Forest. Whereas we've we've got a Nightwings project where we're linking uh, Dagmar National Park, Dagmar Range, Carbine Tablelands, uh, unbroken line all the way through to the south arm of the Daintree by putting in this corridor. So the only thing breaking the line is the road. Mm. That's the only thing. You, you know, <laughs> roads has come yeah. up a couple of times um, in in podcasts, in conversations for me lately. I, I went to that um, Shalumban um, uh, talk in Cairns the other day about the wind farm that's going in. Oh, okay. And yeah. there were studies that came out, uh, like a projected forecast, that between now and um, 2050, throughout the world, there's going to be 200 million kilometres of more road and they believe, obviously, most of it's in developing countries uh, mm. as their population spreads. But a lot of it is still in first-class countries. Oh, and yeah. and roads are at the forefront of so many different environmental issues, not only for the interruption of an ecosystem and wildlife moving through it, but how many times do you drive on a road and they say, oh, this is a cassowary habitat, so what we're going to do is we're going to put up this huge fence on the side so the cassowary can't walk on the road, right? <laughs> <laughs> but all of a sudden you're breaking up the corridor and the cassowary can't flow through there instead of actually building an overpass, underpass or, yeah. or whatever. And also the edge effect is something I've learned a lot about recently and that is as soon as you put the, rain, the road in, you're breaking in the rainforest and you're opening that canopy. So the edge plants are obviously not in the suitable habitat anymore because they're getting a bucket load more sunlight than they should be. So you're getting other plants growing in that area that wouldn't naturally be found there, you know, grasses and, and small shrubs and whatnot. Mm. So, Rhodes, I'm glad you said that, which segues <laughs> me right into the Daintree Blockade. <laughs> oh, the Daintree Blockade. What an interesting group. Tell, very, me, tell me the story. Oh, ah, look, there, there was the long story short, it's a very um, controversial um, moment in time, but also a great moment. Podcasts. We love yeah. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, they wanted to widen the, uh, the track. So originally there's a track that goes from Cape Tribulation through to um, Woodja Woodja and Bloomfield and that, um, following the, uh, the original um, Yalanji pathway. So there was already a, a walking track through that area, uh, but it had been expanded on over time for horseback and people moving north to south, um, tin miners, people looking for gold, um, the missionaries... Uh, all sorts of stuff over time. Uh, it's uh, it's just when there was a, a, a push to widen it to make it a better thoroughfare for people to move north to south, south from Cape Tribulation through to Woodville. So it was really people starting to recognise that there needs to be a, f- a focus on limiting growth and development because at that stage, well, subdividing up the Daintree and they were, you know, trying to get more and more people into the area. And I think that book, Where the Forest Meets the Sea, captures that perfectly by Jeannie Baker. <laughs> she did a good job at um, showing that period in time. So there was a lot of faces, actually quite a lot from out of town. Uh, not I as remember. many locals as you thought um, in the groups. Really? Yeah, burying themselves into the roads and tying themselves to trees. And I mean, there was some locals there and they're still around. Love the stories. Um, I wouldn't have... <laughs> it's quite interesting seeing how many could bury themselves into the road. Um, but really working hard during the dry season to slow that development up. But it wasn't just about stopping the progress of that. It brought a consciousness to the Daintree globally. So um, something that we can now see is through tour guiding um, and, and talking with people visiting from overseas, some were watching it all on TV, watching it on the, uh, reading it in the papers, the, the old 
internet, you know? Just a bit slower, but yeah, <laughs> I used to read it in the papers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I've had people that were from Sydney that had never been to the Daintree, yet they worked so hard in um, getting awareness around Sydney to protect the Daintree because of the efforts of these people. So it was a really good awareness. Um, got a lot of faces, more focused, uh, more your quiet and unsung heroes of getting that paperwork done, getting that recognition to get World Heritage status eventually put over the Daintree National Park area. So um, lots of different um, yeah, perspectives, I guess but all working for the same thing, just to slow up that progress because they knew the wet season was going to make it hard for them to get the dozers through. But, I mean, they still went through. It hasn't been sealed. It's still a place of um, interesting debate. (laughs) Slowly getting sealed. Yeah. Confirmed. We did the Bloomfield track about a month and a half ago. Yeah. And uh, any... rise or fall what's incline or yeah. decline of the road is uh, essentially tarred now or concrete yeah yeah. yeah we're watching them cement the other week so yeah so there's, there's a, it's a changing time where i mean you don't want to uh, personally you can't keep people out of it you've got to have the human aspect in any natural area of the world we've got indirect influence with even the most remotest parts of australia now so um from from the, we've got to find balance so if we've got a road there, well, let's find the best means of uh, yeah, managing it. Um, do we have to have um, better crossing um, as a, um, a canopy? You know, having the roads narrow so the trees do still come across. Yeah. We do risk more trees falling down, but hey, what's a dane tree driving the wet without trees coming down? Yeah. No way people drive it into wet anyway. Yeah, oh, can't get to work today, sorry. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we've had a landslide again. Yeah. <laughs> but it... it, it we're right on the edge of economic viability in the, in the north here. So it's an interesting place of creativity just as much as, um, um, yeah, do we, yeah, we've got to look to the future of finding balance between us and the environment. So we're seeing that with a lot of businesses up there, you know, like the ice cream companies and, um, you know, people wanting to uh, still make the dollar, still survive. Um, a lot of very big um, consciousness of keeping community in the area. So keep the funding coming in to keep the school going because how good's a school in the rainforest? Yeah. You know, in the front yard, crocs out the back. <laughs> there's, there's only two schools I know about now. I think it's that one, Alexandra Bay School in Myalo that have a lockdown procedure for cassowaries. So <laughs> that's an awesome one. That's sensational. I just wish I, would, I was there when the person had to write it down at Ed Queensland <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trying to work out how are we going to structure this? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, uh, we've got to find that balance between us and, and the environment um so yeah with the cassowaries i've noticed the decrease in sightings on the roadsides um faster zip zip zoom zoom driving through the area the cassowaries are smart they even know the speeds of traffic as they come through so i used to do the sneaky things even when i drive still today um 60 kilometer speed limit for a good reason but pull over and let all the cars go past and just wait a moment and just take your time the cassowaries will start just milling around the edge and they know the speed of the traffic. We'd be watching cassowaries on tours and all of a sudden they lift the head and start looking and just twitching around a little bit and then just whoop, off into the forest and a car comes through to an 80. Yeah, right. So, or a delivery truck. Yeah, they just out of the way. So they can pick up on low frequency a lot further away than we do. Because so. that's what I was always They're concerned smart. about when people are stopping for cassowaries. Oh. Take your photo, say good day, blah, blah, blah. And then the cassowary's like, so if I walk on the road, traffic yeah. stops. It's going to stop for me. And next yeah. thing you know, 
Boom. Yeah. I've had them step out in front of me. The old mm. cassowaries that used to get fed. St- if you have a window's down, some would still come up because they'd walk out in front of you and then stick their head in the window. Wow. And you're like, oi, get out. <laughs> get out of it. <laughs> so th- th- we've got to find the balance between us and them too over time. So just take your time. They'll get out of the way as long as we don't stop, if, as long as we keep moving at a slow rate as we pass them. Mm. Yeah. So we, yeah, I don't know. There's so many things you notice over time. Um, seeing cassowaries kick cars that's always fun yeah. <laughs> any particular type of colour of car <laughs> no, just the one that drives too close to the kids um, they do like blue though yeah they chased someone with a blue esky one day that was great yeah. no they're very curious animals um, same with the tree kangaroos it takes them years to get used to people in their environment and they're starting to pick up in numbers the Bennett's tree kangaroos north of the river so they're starting to get sighted more. I see them on my croc tours sometimes. Yeah, right. Um, if the conditions are just right, you know, cooler and, um, yeah, just nice for them to be out on the edge of the forest over the river, you see them. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the life is just phenomenal. So, our, so the corridors within the national parks there and having people with a consciousness of keeping a lot of vegetation on their land, whether it's privately owned or not, the life is moving around. That's a really good thing to see. Um, so we've, we've still got... A fair bit of time to hopefully see if there's not too much change in our area to see that balance come about where the life will move in amongst us and yeah get along a little bit better sound like a hippie but yeah. <laughs> so, so on the topic of cassowaries on, on the topic of cassowaries obviously it's a very iconic animal up here mm. uh, I understand a few years ago a paper was released where they uh, reevaluated the population of cassowaries mm. uh, estimating them to be around four and a half thousand. Uh, in North Queensland now, and obviously with that, I think it changed on the IUCN um, endangered list, Mm. and then the government funding actually dropped for them. Mm. So people out there saying, yes, I'm studying cassowaries, you know, I'm helping them out, and then all of a sudden they released this, which affected their government funding, which is (laughs) very, very difficult. And very, very, it's a political animal. I mean, all (laughs) these iconic animals are hugely political. Yeah, oh, tell me about it. Yeah, we've got some of the rare animals too. I mean, the sawfish in the Daintree River hasn't been seen much at all. Um, what's it, Barbara? I think she did a yeah, podcast with you. Um, I remember bumping into her a while ago saying that they hadn't seen any in their nets for, for a bit during their surveys. And then November last year, I saw one in the river because I always look every October, November for the baby bull sharks and um, saw shark in the shallows, hoping to get a saw shark. But we saw one, so they are there still, which is really good to see. Wow. Um, so, Can't yeah. imagine too many people wanting to try and find <laughs> 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 oh, Well, the upside to having a lot of Queenslanders moving around last year, they all love their fishing, a lot of them. So it was, see the barra, see the mangrove jack, see this, see that. Oh, they're all looking in the water and they didn't forget about the crocs. So, yeah. 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 So, yeah, the food chain is pretty amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell us about um, cassowaries. Obviously, mm. um, they're highly regarded as an important animal in a rainforest, a keystone species. Mm. Can you give us a bit of a rundown on why they're so important? Oh, look, being a, one of the largest animals in the area, to be able to move around a lot of the, the forest fruits of the forest. So, their stomachs are quite unique where they don't damage the seed. It's a squishing motion. So they, so cassowary plums are famous for as one of the best plants to be distributed by cassowaries where if they just fall to the ground, what is it, about 3 to 5%, 4%, yeah. something like that. Yeah, 3 to 
success rate, if it goes through the gut of a cassowary, around about 97% chance of germinating. I mean, we can say that about G-bungs in the wallum of South East Queensland when the emus used to move around a bit more there. They used to really encourage that, that fruit to grow. So their stomachs are really good at squishing and softening but not destroying the seed. Um, not only are they important for the famous seed distribution of, of a lot of uh, fruits, but they eat a lot of stuff from mushrooms to uh, invertebrates to frogs to fish to, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, I started documenting, and everyone thought it was weird on the, um, on the tours, where you'd find a cassowary scat on the walkways, because we make perfect areas for them to move through. They want it easy too, just like us. So a big pile up on the boardwalk, but it's full of mushrooms. Yeah, right. So I started documenting every mushroom that we've seen and every time I've seen a cassowary plucking mushrooms, I've got a video of a dad showing his chicks which ones to pluck off the logs. Yeah. Unbelievable. So if they're eating mushrooms, they're starting to move around the spores of decomposers, mm. symbiotic fungi. Like, um, I mean, all the trees are linked via that fungal network. So they're moving this stuff further than the spores can travel via water or wind. So... They're the connections we don't, still don't fully understand. So they're assisting with the decomposition of vegetation. Yeah, by moving spores further and keeping the, the, the diversity of fungi rich. Because, um, yeah, not many other things eat mushrooms. Oh, I've seen major skinks eat mushrooms. So there is a few things that will eat them. Um, whether the cassowaries eat them because there's nothing else to eat or whether they eat them for a medicinal value, don't know. Um, still a lot of research, I guess, needs to go into that. Make them endangered again, eh? <laughs> funding, yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> no. It's, it's, yeah, well, it, it all comes down to a piece of paper, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it. So, but being well, in the field, <laughs> yeah, be in the field too. You've got to be in the field observing. Mm. Um, uh, it's always great to um, some of the best moments. Uh, I've had um, people with Rainforest Rescue wanting to see some of the properties, and we're seeing, um, you know, what the cassowaries have been up to, the seeds germinating on the track, all that kind of stuff. But also on a tour, um, watching a, a family, you know, a single mum who wanted that, saved up for you know a couple of years to get her kids into the Dane Tree, see this what it for, see it for what it is, and two cassowaries in courtship on the side of the track. Oh, wow! You know, <laughs> booming the whole the whole thing. The kids never realised such a low frequency could come out of an animal like mm. that, and their bodies shook. So it was. I wish I'd filmed it actually. It was a really good moment. So um, yeah, cassowaries. We hope they're going to increase in numbers. Um, we hope they're going to be doing their thing, but got to be in the field to find them too, to know how many are there and yeah. to see what they're doing, what they're eating, what they're interacting with. Yeah. Do you know of any initiatives out there where they're actually trying to monitor the numbers or see what animals are breeding I've, with? I've only heard about genetic testing through SCAT because we've got to find mm. easier ways to do it too. So I know there was that big genetic um, um, project trying to uh, link... Uh, the families and who's connected with who within a mm. region to try and get a better idea on, on numbers. So possibly there could have been 10,000 left. So you can get the, the genetic um, sample through faecal matter? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's kind of like um, they do eDNA now for platypus and stuff like that. I think it can last three days in the waterways, the DNA. So you take a water sample and then wow. if you're focusing on platypus, you can... Yeah. I've, Say, oh, there's platypus I've got a in recollection there. Of, of something similar that was said somewhere along the lines, but also not. It wasn't just with the platypus. I think they were talking about something else. Frogs too. They've been doing frogs with eDNA. Yeah. Um, oh, incredible. A lot of waterway stuff. Incredible. Yes. It <laughs> is this is why we do this podcast so we can learn stuff. 
I know sometimes I bag scientists out, <laughs> but, but I tell you what. <laughs> well, they've done the tour of duty. I'll give yeah, them credit for that. Amazing. <laughs> yep. amazing. I've never had time for it. So I've always been pretty flat out in life. So I never had a chance for uni. Um, one day, maybe. Well, you're, you're <laughs> you already know everything. <laughs> Recognition of problem, isn't it? But the thing is, I personally believe what you're doing is far beyond experience mm. or knowledge that you would get from a university. Mm. Yeah, well, so, uh, we get people who have done their master's degrees come along and um, still have a hard time finding the connections. Yeah. So uh, my background down in the Sunshine Coast was looking after commercial properties, so shopping centres and stuff like that with the gardens. I was just a gardener on the books, but I was trying to bring back na- you know, natural fauna mm. and flora for the area. So um, very con- there was a very controversial project down there for a, um, a shopping precinct um, on the sunny coast, and they had to buy retention basins. They had lots of real strict environmental guidelines. It was mm. in Wallum, Wallum area, so Wallum froglet habitat. The water had to be acidic, not yeah, which is really hard to do when you get cement and yes. you know cars and all that stuff. Um, we managed to make it work, you know, brought back the wall and froglets into new areas where they'd never been heard before, um, had fish coming right up into where the water come out from the drainage. So just by doing that on the side, you find the connections. Yet I worked with, you get the consultants coming along to do an inspection and then they're, oh, but you haven't done this and this and this. And it's like, yeah, but it's working. It's not on the, even though it's not on the piece of paper, this is, it's working. We're taking the heavy metals out. We're not getting the sediment, uh, the nutrient runoff. We're keeping the pH low. Mm. You know, the, it's working. Um, let's, we're learning something new, mm. whereas other areas, council ones, may not have been working very well because they're a different way of treating them. Yeah. So, yeah, recreating a liver. Um, so, yeah, and you're in, the field, you're in the field, which to me is mm. so much better. And what I mean by bagging the scientists is that people like ourselves who or yourself out in the field you're you're amongst it or you're feeling it you're smelling it you're watching and you're realizing where plants will be starting to grow at what time of time of year where you're mm. going to find cassowaries or where you're going to find a muscarat kangaroo or so forth yeah. so with that um what i mean by with the scientists then coming in and, and i find this in a lot of conversations is Science plays a massive role, yes, for sure, but there's, there's, there's a bridge um, missing between the scientists and then everyone in the field. The naturalists, yeah. Yeah, naturalists mm. and how everyone, and we can bridge that gap where then it can be joined to then work together. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, just, it's like two different languages. <laughs> yeah, but it's so important. You need a translator in the middle. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, you probably do. <laughs> or a mediator, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, yeah. But it's important, and this is something that I've noticed with all the wild chats we've been having, is, um, is, is that is some big issues in, in decision-making, in management, in tourism. Mm. There's so many, like... Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got the big change in times here at the moment. I mean, look at all the citizen science stuff that's happening yeah, uh, with so technology. Cool. We can do all that. I mean, I Naturalist Quester game, the game based. Yes. You know, that's awesome. I mean, I use it for ID when I don't know something, and then you end up by accident um, taking the first photographs or you know proper flower, fruit, and you know specimen um, photograph of a type of plant or. Uh, there was a, I mean, a crazy little semi-slug thing I saw up at Mount Lewis one day. I went, oh, that looks like a nudibranch. I'll take a photo of that. Don't know what it is. They're usually all brown and boring. But this one was white with yellow cone-shaped spikes on it. It's wow. weird, eh? 
second time it's ever been seen. But no name for it yet. There's no specimens in the museum. So that's the link that's finally happening where technology, technology. we've got, you know, as, you know, we're, when anyone who loves being in the field, you'll mm-hmm. just see, you just got to have the curiosity. Get yes. rid of the, I know a lot. Just go, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. Just be humble about it and just go, oh, what is that? That's a bit odd. I've never seen that before. And then you pay a bit of attention, take some photos, and turns out, yeah, probably hasn't been seen. Um, I've got a photograph of the Thornton's Peak snail. I didn't even know I had a photo of it. I just thought, that's a cool-looking snail. Didn't even know it was a snail. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky it was alive. Um, but, yeah, it turns out it's the first photograph of the Thornton's Peak snail. So, and you, you upload mm. a lot of them on, did you say, Quester? Yeah, like iNaturalist or Quester Game. There's another or, one called Australian something, something. Um, I was speaking to Tennille Hawke about Platypus the other day, mm. and so she was saying that um, that's going to be linked to some of the research and studies that they're doing with the platypus, but she named another database that you can upload your animals there. Oh, Atlas of Living Australia? Oh, I'll have to double check, yeah. yeah. Or Australia's Living Atlas. But I haven't yeah. heard of that one. <laughs> yeah. Of well, all, all, the best thing about all these different groups, yeah. whether it's, yeah, Frog ID or there's the frog groups in the southern states, there's so many different ones now uh, that it can all be put into the living atlas of Australia like it all goes to one place and it's just adding to it more and more at a faster rate mm. and we're you know we're making huge advancements I think it is yeah, yeah. but um, we still need the 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 discipline of science yeah you've got to have it otherwise how are we going to know That's for the it. future it becomes a, a yarn so, or an urban legend definitely yeah. definitely <laughs> play, play, plays its role yeah. for sure yeah yeah. But it's um, the issues are the working together. But like you said, technology mm. is bridging the, um, the gap a bit there. Yeah. Um, so which is really good. Yeah. yeah. So you can't forget those first families too in the areas like um, timber cutters. They get dismissed because they used to cut trees down. Mm. So actually, they're very selective. They're thinking genetics. They're thinking the future of. So there were certain trees they, that were protected to say you cannot cut this one down. And if you not fell a tree and it hits that one. You could lose a lot of money out of your pay for the future for the value of that tree for the industry. So talking with the regen projects, I do. I, I love talking with traditional owners, uh, the people who grew up in the area. And it doesn't matter what ethnicity, you know, we, we're all Australians. Um, bridging the gap of healing country, but also respecting the, the, the first naturalists of the area, the people that were observant, the ones that cleared for cane fields. They know what was growing there. Yeah, you look at uh, the eco, um, the vegetation maps of this area, it's quite general. It's really hard to get exactly what was there. So, Was it the, the Masons, isn't it? Lawrence Mason. Up at um, Cape Trib, yeah. yeah. his father and him used to do tours through the mm. rainforest at the back of their property. And the knowledge that that man has is oh. second to none. Yeah. He walks through the rainforest and just knows every single corner of that property. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they're the important ones, eh? Because... They know the, the rhythms of the seasons too. Mm. So like our, this area here, I mean, Friday we finally had the, the buff-breasted paradise kingfisher show up in the valley where we're doing a regen at Tranquility near the crab track. Um, yet they'd already been up at Gelatin. Donovan Range, Cary Range, you know, they, they've all, seen already been there. last week. Yeah. So they, they tend to do this big circle around and then they move into the Mossman Gorge and up into the Daintree Valley there. You don't hear them calling until some of the last... You know, last calls for the start of the season. So that, is that documented? We don't know. But you start to notice it over time. 
But there you had triggers, like black bittens, they all showed up. The, the buffies started calling. Um, the great-billed herons are roaring like crazy of an afternoon. Uh, the thunder season's here. Jaramali season's happening. So the Indigenous calendar then comes into it. So when it comes to regen, we've really got to try and work with those seasons as well. So when it's going to be too wet and when it's going to be too hot and dry for the plants to grow and get a kick off. So yeah, we've got the five seasons around this area, but you go just over the range, it becomes the six seasons. So yeah, kind of like the territory. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So with tour guiding, it helped out to know them too. So you know what the cassowaries are going to be doing. Or, yeah. So are they going to be higher up? Are they going to be lower down? Are they going to be needing water? Are they going to be, you know, having their kids? So yeah, um, it all links. Um, when it gets cooler up in the high country, we know, you know, it started quite cool early this year with the quoll side of things. Um, they were a bit different in their breeding behaviour, yet we had sightings of spotted tail quoll down in the low country near sea level in some very interesting really? places. Yeah. One guy up where I was doing the regen, thermal imaging, he was just out and he saw one. It was like around where I had my plant holding area for the regen. So what, what kind of altitude are we talking? Well, like right on sea level. Yeah, well, it's up in the valley there. So what's that? Not even 100 metres. Wow. Yet the books will say for uh, 800 metres and up for the home of spotted tail quolls. I mean, it could be just males wandering around, but hey, we don't know. Same as the tree kangaroos. Like, they go up and down mm. with the you seasons. You see them at JCU all the time. <laughs> <laughs> one at JCU at the moment, or was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. All, oh. the all the books say they're endemic to the tablelands. <laughs> <laughs> Here they are coming down to Smithfield. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Lummies and the Mowbray, yeah, Mowbray River, they're there. Really? Um, Oak Beach. Crystal Cascades. Plongetti. Yeah, they follow the creek lines where the food is. Yeah, they're all expanding because their numbers are changing, so no one eats them anymore. <laughs> that probably helps. <laughs> yeah. That would have kept them up high a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, they're... We're seeing Bennett's showing up on the other side of the river, up in the Daintree Valley. People are just taking photos. Oh, I had this tree king. I've seen photos. And it's a Bennett's. And so, yeah, we're learning over time that, you know, how we've changed the landscape's helping life jump the gap now up in the upper Daintree. So, yeah, over time, hopefully we'll find that balance, you know. Speaking of uh, crossing the river... What are your thoughts? This is another controversial topic. (laughs) Should there be a bridge? You're going to get me in trouble, eh? Or a ferret. No, that's that's what these talks are all about. A very quick announcement to make, but I'm so excited. Our home education virtual portal is up and running and you can visit that at www.australianwildlifeeducation.com and if you are a parent or you know other parents who have children ages 4 to 12, this one is specifically for them and they get to learn more about Australian wildlife. So uh, the bridge, oh, because there's always been to talk about every single year. I swear it comes up. Mm. Uh, should there be a bridge? And the new mayor that came into the Douglas Shire put out a proposal and a, a bit of a um, community consultation of whether there should be a bridge instead of the Daintree Ferry. Mm. What are your thoughts? Talk me through it. I've heard similar stories down. Like, should we? Should they have bridged the Noosa River to Noosa North Shore? You know, like they've still got a ferry there. Um, You've, there's too many aspects. You've got to cover environmental, you've got to co- cover social. You know, the people that live north of the river, there's a group, you know, there's certain faces that love having that ferry because it separates the world in, as a psychological thing, you know, a mental thing, emotional. Um, whereas some would feel, oh, it'd be so much easier if I could just, just get over, you know, that ferry slows me it's up. It's the convenience. Yeah, convenience. That river's been such a natural 
barrier over time of separating species of animal, plant and vertebrate north to south. Um, yeah, cassowaries swim the river sometimes. Um, it's been seen. Tree kangaroos, we've seen them try to swim across the river, Bennett's. Wow. Um, one, one of our drivers actually protected the tree kangaroo with the boat from the crocs as it <laughs> tried to get across. So that was an interesting one. Can't have it get eaten in front of tourists. Uh, so there's always that quite an effective moat that's been there. Uh, but the river used to be a lot deeper and cooler and um, narrower at one stage. So. Mm. Yeah, it is becoming a lot more shallow and wider. Yeah, and warmer and less... Yeah, so things are changing. So a bridge, though, it's, there's still not a lot of traffic at night. Mm-hmm. So you could imagine life being able to jump that gap pretty easily um, where they might have to put the bridge where it's a little bit narrower. And But then that changes traffic through the area and changes people's perspectives on how their property was nice and quiet now the cars are all coming past. It's the convenience of getting over there yeah. for humans, but then there's the issue ecologically, so... Well, with um, tour guiding, got to find a cassowary for people. They want to see it. So the cassowaries work it out over time. That the, the cars come through in groups. Everyone's in a rush. That's exactly so, my thoughts yeah, on it. The slowest car is going to slow up the traffic. And um, the cassowaries have seen it so many times. They'll just sit there and they'll wait and they'll wait. And then the cars have all gone past. There's a gap and out they come. Yeah. And they'll actually look both ways with the ones that have lost chicks to cars before. So... Yeah. It's really interesting to watch that movement. That's yeah. what I love about the ferry is it breaks mm. up the flow of traffic and allows more time for foreign to cross. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you, you know, you said the psychology aspect to it. I love when we run a tour and we say, mm. right, we're about to cross the ferry. It's like you're moving into a different world. It's almost like yeah. you're going in Jurassic Park. I think it's you an island. Opening, you jump on it. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that before. Yeah, so many people think it's an mm. island, which in a way it almost is uh, with the ecotones. Yeah, you know, the the upper Daintree to the Bloomfield and you've got dry country, yet then you've got mm. rainforest. So there really is this island feel about it with mm. um, the different, uh, yeah, ecologies. Yeah. So we're pro-ferry, hey? Mate, I, I'm trying <laughs> to stay out of it. <laughs> that is such a hard one. Um, I, I will never give a, an idea on that one. Mm. It's, it's, I can see the pros and cons for it all. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, as a person, you have your own opinion. <laughs> but yeah. then... I try to stay on the uh, on the fence of understanding every perspective first. Yeah. And some of these, and that um, one will keep going. Yeah. Some of these topics, they've got so many interesting points on both sides of the fence, mm. and, and I love the fact that you're talking about the fact that the river is a moat for the yeah. wildlife. Not, to, it's not just a moat; it's protected by crocodiles. Yeah, sharks like, and crocodiles. <laughs> in it. It's a it's a proper dangerous crossing. <laughs> you should see when a pig tries to swim across the I river. I have seen it before. The actually. amount of crocs that show oh. up. Yeah. That what you didn't even know were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I seen a pig um, at Hartley's when I worked there yeah. into the lagoon. It broke <laughs> through the fence and tried to oh, cross. No. Imagine going, oh yes, I've just got through this fence. What glorious world is on the other side? There's no one and else. Then, and then it goes to swim across <laughs> the river. And dead set, I'm talking 40 crocodiles came beaming for this pig. <laughs> and he swimmed along having a good time, then just <laughs> never seen again. Yeah. Just nice straight under. Quiet. Little splash. <laughs> Yeah, we've seen pythons, we've seen snakes, we've seen oh, all sorts of things try to get across that river. So it's an, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting moat. Yeah, <laughs> so even that dry country to the west can slow a lot of movement of life from wanting to get a, uh, go through to the Carbine and then the Windsor. So yeah, it's all separated by different ecotones, different weather patterns. Yeah. You mentioned that the river is getting wider and more shallow and warmer. Mm. Can you talk us through that? Oh, so. 
you think of it from, I used to look after marine aquariums when I was living down south, so you really start to pay attention to marine uh, water chemistry. Um, also working with Wallum, with um, acid fins uh, around Rainbow Beach and stuff like that, very unique areas. And so when you have nice, cool, dark water, so the Merry Valley in particular, where I did a little bit of regen when I finished high school, uh, a bit of work with um, Merry River Cod Habitat, got the trees, it's going to be narrower, deeper, cooler, higher oxygen, better biodiversity, more stable, not, not, so, much, not so much ups and downs. Uh, the platypus would be more comfortable uh, year-round to be out in the daytime, whereas on the main river, wouldn't see them all day if it was too hot until later on in part of the day. Um, so, yeah, you, you watch the warmer areas get less oxygen. So that means, yeah, less biodiversity. The fish, they don't like it as much. They're going to go a bit sluggish. So it does change things quite quickly. Um, talking with some of the, you know, people born and bred in the Daintree Valley, they talk about the dolphins that used to go all the way up. Um, the, the jellyfish blooms that would come up the system. Um, the river would get covered in lerps, you know, the little sugary casings, little fairy things you should get. Usually they're tiny little things, but in the forest you get the big, feathery, silky yeah, lerps on the leaf. Happen, yeah, yeah um, they reckon the river used to look like snow was on it by that. Yet you rarely ever see it now. So Going back how long? With within a lifetime. Especially dolphins. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So you talk with someone in their 70s, you know, and they'll kids seeing the dolphin in the river. That's, oh. And they talk about where they used to fish. <laughs> Yeah, where the river used to flow through and where the trees used to be before such and such, you know, cleared it. So you start to puzzle it all together on how the river's been, how quickly it moves. We can, we've only got aerial imagery since the late, uh, I think it was early in the 50s. We can get access to that pretty easily. Do you think most of it's along, natural so. movement of the river or do you think the development on the edge of the river's had a fair oh, that, part to play? Rivers move. I mean, the Daintree moves at a metre and a half on average per year is its natural rate. Wow, uh, that's whereas, massive. Yeah, but then... Yeah, well, look at the aerial shots. You'll see oxbow lakes everywhere, like the Amazon. Mm. Got those little side wetlands. Yes. Yeah. So, but take the trees away, it starts to swing even faster. So it just makes it shallower and wider. And yeah. So we watch areas where, yeah, oh, you'd know, Matt, the Milky Pine on the Daintree on tours, the big Milky Pine and the crocs hang around it. That was our point of reference. They used to be like fifteen meters away from the bank. Really. Give it two years, that'll be in the river. Yeah, so, it's right next to it now. Yeah, we, every year we watch the different trees go in. And I think, geez, there's going to be some good fish behind that tree when it falls in. So, <laughs> there's a positive. Um, but, you know, as a river no, moves, sorry, sorry. <laughs> there's always a positive to every negative. So, yeah, we lose a few, you know, there's no mangroves to slow it up. More trees fall in. But there's different opportunities being created by that. And eventually the river's going to hit a critical mass and swing back the other way again. Hopefully, we've learnt by that stage to just have things a little bit more stabilised to slow that movement. So, yeah, up in the upper Daintree where we've got a regen project at the moment at Tranquility, which uh, will have a name change um, to a, one of the local Indigenous names. Um, one little three-hectare plot is all we're working on at the moment from where some cascades are and the first part of the creek to help restabilise that from where cattle have been feeding for quite a while. Um, so look after your creeks, start at the top and eventually you're helping the coral spawning events, you're helping yeah. Yeah, the nanny guys we want to catch and the barra and yeah, you end up helping everything else down the chain. And that's yeah. it, There's, um, this is what I spoke about um, today with um, Alberto, is how do, we, how do we educate more of 
general public in regards to understanding that rivers, for example, are really important nursery grounds for some of the fish that they love to catch or eat mm. and, and so forth. Like how, because every time we do shows now, the majority of the audience is like, I never knew that. And it's like, mm. what are we missing? Where, how, it, uh, there's so many documentaries on the TV. There's so many um, books out there that people mm. are in, but how are they missing it? Because surely half of this stuff isn't the first time that they've heard. So what do you mm. believe is, what do we need to do to help get more of, of our community on board to understand, to fall in love, to be educated about our natural world? I mean, we live in paradise up here, but yet we have so many problems with, well, we've got the quoll issue with um, the decline in the numbers, and then we've got the issue with living with crocodiles. Um, and, you know, we could go on and on, clearing mm. of land and, you know, so, I don't know. Tell us what do you think. Oh, geez, that's, a, that's oh, a big... You I just covered you so I many of them. If you <laughs> said, what is the meaning of life, it would be an easy answer. <laughs> I told you at the start, I'm, I'm a deep thinker and I uh, throw what, these things out. I thought, um, uh, what was it? The meaning of life. Uh, what we do in life echoes in eternity. There you go. Gladiator. <laughs> that's the meaning of life. <laughs> all right, you no, took the easy question. <laughs> now, nah, look... Um, so, how do we solve all the issues? We, we, we can't be... Like, everybody's everybody's got their, their, their loves and what they enjoy doing. So say a fisherman, you love going to chase your barra. We've got a, a lot of people are now starting to see the connection between, uh, like the cane farmers, there's a lot of, you know, it's second, third, fourth generation uh, faces that have seen what's the quick change, but then they've realised, oh, my barra were dropping off and wetlands are needed and this is needed. And um, I do a lot with cane farmers to try to find better ways of uh, fixing carbon in the ground a little bit better on um, which weeds work best where as a mulch instead of as treating them as a weed and, and stuff like that. And they're really starting to become agricultural scientists and never gone to uni. You know, they're thinking of the future with, with even carbon nowadays. So, But if they love their fishing... You, sh- you just you show them that link between the barramundi coming into the wetlands as juveniles, feeding on the mosquito larvae as juveniles, and mozzies do have a role to play. <laughs> and then um, moving their way into the rivers and out again. Um, I get them on the croc tours sometimes. They've never been out on the river on a crocodile tour, but they got dragged out with the family because they were visiting and they go, I had no idea. No. So it's that spark of curiosity, which is really hard to kick off in some, mm. but... They can be the leaders in their field yes. to start connecting the dots between it all because it is all linked. So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I don't bag cane farmers. I like working with them yeah. because they're really starting to focus on um, uh, the future industry. There's been massive changes with cane farmers. Oh, yeah. Huge. Massive. I, 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 I've been here for 21 years and massive. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, uh, carbon sinks, I, even just the way mm-hmm. that they can, in the sandier soils, putting all that mulch down deep and mm-hmm. trapping the phosphates and the and the nitrates and helping the, the, the wonky holes, as we call them, because everyone loves it, chasing nanogai and, and reef fish offshore. They're, those springs are, are getting going to get cleaner because of what they're doing with their farming to trap phosphates and nitrates. And this is the thing, right, is for cane mm. farmers, somebody was like, right, I need to put this theory or put mm. this information in front of cane farmers. So mm. that that is kind of what I believe right now, a bit easier than, than seeing the community as a, as a whole. Mm. Like how are we meant to put all this information in front of the general public? So farmers, cool. Okay, there's, there's, there's a 
farm here, there's a farm there, and you can knock mm. on the doors if you really need to. But so much work, like over the last 21 years, that is something that's come up for me is like, how do I, or how do we get all this information in front of people? Mm. How does this happen? Because what you explain there is perfect in someone going, well, well, I don't want that to happen because mm. then there's, there's an effect for them. Why would they want to be an effect? Mm. You want to be a cause of it and you want to, you want to like create something amazing for mm. your own livelihood. But yet we actually, we, re- whether people realize it or not, we, we need to work together oh, yeah. with nature. Mm. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, um, um, uh, there's a, there's a tree at the front that's dead and it's been poisoned because someone didn't like the leaves on their lawn. You know, and we, we come back from holidays and we're like, what? I love that tree. This is where our pineapple <laughs> come in. Uh, he, he, they, they come in every yeah, They just year. rocked up this year and they're like, ah, and what's like, going on no here? Leaves. There's no leaves, but out of yeah. inconvenience of just normal, general people, how do, how do I, yeah, or how do mm. we, I'm speaking. That is I, a hard one. It is hard mm. and it, and it keeps, like, it shouldn't keep me up at night but at times I allow it to keep me up at night because I'm trying yeah. to, I'm a wildlife educator how yeah. do we um, how do we help how do we make a change how do we do this yeah. can only keep planting seeds that's right. all I can say just plant that little seed with people sometimes it doesn't grow until they're in their 50s 60s mm-hmm. 70s or they're out of effect yeah. by it yeah, yeah. so um yeah, like I, I, I get it. There's a lot of people that have done some big things in life and they've, you know, they've become millionaires and they're like, but they've used all that time to keep growing and that's how they felt. Mm. But then they're going, oh, what's my legacy? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that can come later. But then they benefit. Mm-hmm. The next space is coming through with environmental groups, you know, that, oh, I want to help protect the Dane tree or something like that. So, uh, the best thing about in my new job as the land manager for Rainforest Rescue, I get to talk with a lot of these people. They, they come up on a holiday, they go, can we please see, you know, what we've helped to, to protect, what we've put some money towards. Um, you know, every year we have a, a bit of an appeal for certain blocks and they, oh, can we see that one? How good is that? Yeah, that is really good. You can, you can go, and, and I love being able to, to spend a couple of hours walking through that property, mm-hmm. showing them that connection between the rainforest with them, with, uh, I mean, geez, they might just like coffee. All right, well, let's go look at the native gardenias. It's part of their ancestral group for coffee. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I love yeah. how you bridge that because that's mm. important. Like they love coffee, so let's go and see that. And there's mm. there's that relationship to them. There's the connection to themselves. Making yeah. it relatable and personable yeah. is really important too. Like oh, I remember yeah. um, there was another Absolutely. conservation group that's buying back land. There's a few of them. And one of them was saying, if you give this much, you get this much land. So you might, you know, you might get one square meter. So people go, wow, you know, I this square I meter right here. Is mine or people that plant trees? See that tree? I planted that tree. Yeah, you know I mean? so that's what, that's one thing I love with the tree plant days that we do. Like we we do. Uh, I used to get involved with big tree plant days down in the Mary Valley. Loved it, and yeah, people will show up. I'd planted heaps, and to go back there years later and go, look how big that is wow. now. You know, wow, that's we got rid of all the Chinese elm and camphor laurel, and like one section there was one native growing out of this huge creek area. That was it. It was all camphor laurel and natives. But to still see that tree there and then everyone else that we planted mm. around now, now they're a flood barrier. They're helping to trap sediment better. The water quality is a bit better. You know, that kind of yes. stuff. It's pretty awesome to see. So up here, 
it goes faster. Mm. So you can come back in two years' time and your little tiny plant you put in the ground is going to be about 10 foot tall or more. So I've got a really, really hard question here. It's hard for me because I can't possibly (laughs) understand it, but when you're regenerating land, like you're planting trees, is there an issue with these trees growing up in such a sunny environment? Like they're growing very quickly. Does Mm. that cause any issues for the structural integrity of the plant when it is older? Yeah, the faster a plant grows, the less dense the the timber is. Correct. Mm. So that's why we get a lot of trees coming down on road edges because that's all your pioneer species popping up. Um, So that's one of the downers. But um, the slower growers need that protection to be able to slowly pop up through it. So Mm. if you don't have your, um, a good example, red cedars, beautiful timber tree linking timber cutting. That was worth so much money. It was worth more than gold, but they were tall, they were straight, they were slow growing, they were beautiful timber. You grow them in the open on their own, tip moth gets them, they grow more like an oak tree, really squat Mm. and wide, almost like you'd think jacaranda or something, but yeah, just more like an oak, I guess you could say. Um, So yeah, if it's fast growing, it's going to be a little bit... It's kind of like corals too. Even the corals, the fast growing corals are more brittle. The slower growing ones, they're the foundations. It's the solid. So, um, You've got to have the fast growers because they're creating the home. The house, I should say. Then the home comes in after that for the life. So you time. plant a, a certain percentage of certain species so you get a quick canopy and then it protects the foundations underneath. Yeah, so get that canopy closure to keep the weeds under control. So that, like cane farms, oh, every, you could do a thesis on every type of weed that you can get in a cane field. So, <laughs> but um, every, everyone has a different approach. So um, I started to, let's work smarter, not harder. We want to use less herbicides. You know, don't want to have to use herbicides. Poor ground, utilise the weeds that aren't going to be as competitive with the plants that you put in the ground. Um, encourage the ones that will outcompete the, the worst of the nasties. Um, and then keep a little buffer around the plant. Once the plants get up and start getting their roots out, they start outcompeting the weeds. They have a nice little, you know, buffer of their own for getting water and nutrient. Get that canopy closure, then all the life starts moving in. You get that protection from the UV light. Uh, you get the, the connections in the life starting to take place underground with the, the fungal network slowly establishing. Um, you don't tend to see the benefit at times um, till 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, yeah. we, I just learnt this weird little connection between maples and um, one of our silky oaks. Yeah. You know, if you've got the Proteaceae family there, for some reason the maples do a lot better. But if the maples are on their own, they don't grow. So they've worked out for some reason there's excess aluminum in the leaves of a silky oak. What does that mean? We don't know yet. But that's 10 years of a regen in place of experimentation. What are we going to learn the next 10 years? Um, So this is all still works in progress, but that's the science behind it. And we need that so that we can write a a better list on this is how we should do it Mm. over a, a one, two five, ten year system for bringing back a forest. Um, But you can plant a tree wherever you want, but a house is not a home until someone moves in. Mm. So if there's too much of just pioneer species, quick growers, there's not going to be much left in ten years' time. You've got to have that, those homes establishing over time. So So Rainforest Rescue obviously a lot of research or a lot of data is given to them in regards to what species is found in certain areas or what were there. And then, of course, people like 
people like yourself yeah. who understand, well, you can't put that there, you need to put this here. And yeah, so everywhere, so yeah. It's not just yeah. plonk a bunch of trees in, in an area. So no, you've got to be in the right place. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people think that. <laughs> Yeah. So you just you just plant and any old trees and it just a rainforest tree just just put it. Won't there. it come back anyway? Yeah, yeah it will. Yeah, slowly, so. like a like a glacier. Like we look at the rainforest, I like to look at it as a glacier, mm. slowly rolling forward, mm. and it will take over eventually. Mm. Uh, but by doing regen projects, you're just speeding up the proce- process. Yeah. It's a big um, procedure in models. Yeah, so like if you're working on a waterway, completely different way of looking at it. Mm. Um, like right now I've got to create buffers you know right at your waterfalls you always have your penders growing really well because they can take the worst of the floods and you have your lamandras all around that and then your lily pillies are putting their roots down and stabilising the creek line so it's just beautiful roots all along the edge and they arch out over the river then they create the protection for your Leichhardt trees and your blue quandongs and your cassowary plums so there's a very specific natural order um, along creek lines but downstream further will be different so yeah, yeah. yeah you start to pick up all these little things over time yeah, yeah. um but i don't think it's a, a big win until the canopy's there and you see the life move in because they don't like open spaces yeah a lot of those rainforest birds won't fly over open ground they have to fly along you know just above a tree line um that goes for lots of birds yeah even in the wallum ground parrots you go out looking for them, stand near the power pole that's going across, the power lines that are going across the open area, because they'll fly between every tall point. <laughs> yeah, they won't just go over the open ground all the time. So, yeah, rainforest animals, they're, they're very simple. They, they love closed-in spaces. Mm. They love protection. That's why yeah. I love the rainforest. <laughs> <laughs> you can see what's coming. It works, doesn't Perfect it? Perfect <laughs> So with Rainforest Rescue, where can people donate or... Um, what can they do to help? help yeah, help plant trees. Support. Lots of things. Uh, I mean, some people feel that they can do it financially. Um, www.rainforestrescue.org.au you, know, you can get involved, see all the projects that are happening, see uh, uh, what's coming up in the future. Um, some people are really good at, they love just planting trees and we have tree plant days. You keep an eye on social media. Um, we've got a... One coming up soon. Yeah, 27th of November, we've got one up at uh, the Tranquility property. Yeah, I think I've just got a notification to, about that today. Yeah, just to kick it all, uh, kick off that project. Um, that property is just a privately owned property. Yeah, ask the questions. That's all I say. You can't mm-hmm. know everything, so you've got to keep asking questions. Mm-hmm. Let that child within come out. Um, yes. Come out on a tour with us. Go out on a tour on in the rainforest. Um, yeah, just yep. start to dig your nose into as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, and with Rainforest Rescue, we're always open to... Um, I get questions all the time. <laughs> and if I don't know, I'll tell you. I'm pretty brutally honest with with, light, with wildlife and, and the natural world. If I don't know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, let's look it up. And <laughs> maybe nobody knows yet. So, right. yeah, awesome. I love that. I love well, it. Before we round it up, I want to ask you a question. What is your all-time favourite book? Because I reckon you've read a lot. Mm, <laughs> I'm going to feel like you've read every book. I love audio books. You love audio books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Reading is like uh, it's got our pictures. <laughs> uh, look. Um, the one that inspired me for the Daintree is always with the Forest Meets the Sea by Jenny Baker. She just captured the essence. Yeah, it's a kid's book, mm. but the, the mosaics, the, the, the textile work she did. Have to, you got that book? To, oh, just to trap cap. I used to tell people, buy that book instead of getting a postcard, you know. Some people go, oh, where can I get a magnet? No, get this book. 
Mm. You know, don't get a fluffy toy. Um, you will get that essence of the danger every time you go through it. Um, so that's always a great one for the imagination. Um, but otherwise, geez, like from the indigenous stuff, dark emu, human mm. agriculture, the permaculturalists of Australia. Bruce Pascoe did a really good job with that book. Um, and uh, yeah, oh, there's so many. It's really hard. Um, docos now. Love so docos. Many. Mm. So many. There's one coming out soon on Netflix called Animal. Have you heard about that? No. And it features uh, animals from all around the world, but it actually features mm. the tablelands specifically. That's oh, uh, one of them. So Alan Galanders went out and actually... That's who, that's who we need <laughs> on a podcast. <laughs> um, he actually went out specifically with this film crew and, mm. uh, and recorded some of the animals that are found out there. Mm. I believe that's tree kangaroos will feature on it. Good, good. And that's, that's an international yeah. like, TV mm. series. On Netflix. That's on awesome. Netflix too. Because how many people come to the day tree and say, tree kangaroo? Like, What? <laughs> I've never heard of a kangaroo in a tree. Like yeah. so many people. They're like the lemurs of Australia. I'm still baffled <laughs> yeah. how that thing can be okay being all the way up there. Oh, I love watching them. Yeah. Fascinates me. So there, yeah, um, geez, I'm on, I'm on Netflix. Have you seen me on there yet? No. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. The kids told me the other week. Wild Australia. Ray Mears, uh, English presenter. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, I was, I was watching the that the other day. Bennett's footage. I was watching that the other day. You're yeah, on there, right? Eh? I got a helmet on. I'm up in the canopy. Oh, right. In my harness. In the so you can't surfing. actually tell it to you. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to look like I knew what I was talking about. But it's about the animals. You know? Yeah, right. I'll have to check that out, actually. Yeah, I had a good laugh when I saw that. I went, oh, my gosh. The TV shows like that are so important. I oh, mean, particularly when it's not like this lion is in this family and has these cubs, the lion's angry at his son at the moment. Like, okay, I don't care. But they're, they're highlighting animals that are not very well known. And it's really, really cool. Like the Lumholtz tree kangaroo. Yeah. It never, ever gets international recognition or attention. And here it is being broadcasted to the world. It's, it's Very awesome. intelligent animals. Yeah. And with, even with crocodiles, more closely related to birds. Than they are to lizards, snakes, and turtles. How cool is that? Yeah, that nobody is. knows. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, just they're probably as smart as cockatoos in a way, you know, like just don't have to eat as often. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me on crocodiles. Oh, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. That is another podcast. Uh, but they're all connected. Yeah, they're all Love linked. It. Probably one of the best things I got told by an elder up in the Daintree, which always rings true, is I asked him, why do we see so many box jellyfish? And he goes, oh, we have to stop killing dingoes. So what's, what's that got to do with the box jellyfish? Because they never talked about them as much. Early settlement doesn't talk about boxes as much, but we see lots of them now. So he says, well, the dingoes are the best opportunity we have to, create, to control wild pigs. Wild pigs are the biggest predator of turtle eggs. They love digging up turtle eggs. We see it every year on the beaches. They love them. Turtles eat box jellyfish. There's a connection straight away. Yeah, but that's exactly. thinking of the future too. Yeah. It's not just what they used to do. Yeah. Th- it's still... They're still part of country, just like us. So mm. that's, that's probably one of the um, best things that I've been told to keep connected. Absolutely. Yeah, keep looking forward, but don't forget the now will yeah, help out the future. Mm. Absolutely. So keep the podcast going. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very oh, important. Absolutely. And, and, and meeting people like yourself, to be honest, still, uh, it inspires and motivates me to continue on, but also... I'm learning every single day. I've learned so much from these podcasts. Oh, man, yeah. And just mm. talk, but I love how people see the world and I, mm. I love those deeper, I'm like the deeper one, um, where I ask those qu- questions of why, what, how, when, mm. you know, 
Um, and I love the way that, or I love how you see things, your perception of it all and, and how you've explained it and exactly how you ended it just before. It's perfect. Well, we did say at the start of the podcast, this is Justin who knows everything. Oh, and yeah. I'm surely the <laughs> listeners have understood and realised. <laughs> I still want to know how to fix my car properly. <laughs> still got to learn that and <laughs> the computer. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really awesome chat. I've actually not a problem. Yeah, my brain is ticking, ticking, ticking. I, I actually, I would love to get you back on again sometime soon because I feel that from this conversation I'm just going to go back go away and reflect a lot and uh, yeah I do know that already I've got questions for you or I've got um I would love to continue another wild chat so yeah let's go on location I was you know <laughs> we've, we've been said that yeah. we've been said a lot I <laughs> was about to say but yeah. we will come and let's go out into the because bush. Rossi we're going to do a campfire yes. and talk about Australian history mm-hmm. <laughs> we need yes. to get on location with yes. people that's it, it. Uh, new year that's our that's that's our new goal for wild chats perfect on that note let's let everyone leave <laughs> all right and uh thank you so much for coming along Cheers. no problem we'll talk to you soon Wow, another awesome wild chat, which I hope you really enjoyed because I can tell you now I absolutely did. I would really love to connect with you all as well. So please don't forget to find us on Facebook and Instagram, which you can get the links in our podcast show notes. I have them right there for you. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us by spreading the word. You can also take a screenshot of the episode you just listened to, share it on your socials and tag us in it, of course. We would also love a review. If you have time, please jump on your podcast channel you just listened to us on and give us a review, give us some feedback and don't forget to click that big subscribe button which of course helps us spread the word even further and for you to also be notified for any upcoming episodes. If you are somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who would love to be on our Australian Wildlife Education Wild Chats, please send them my way or get in contact with me Also in the show notes, you can find all those details on how to get in contact. I love chatting and also learning from others who can showcase their knowledge, their expertise, but also their passion and any projects that they might have going on. So please reach out to me as I would love to get you on our podcast. But otherwise, I hope you're all amazing. I hope you're all having a great day. And I well, you'll be hearing from me in the next Wild Chat. See you next week. Bye.